Money talks. But so do we. I'm Lauren. And I'm Daniel. And And we're we're your friends friends with with tax benefits. We're here to sound off about write-offs. To get wise about wealth building. And to take the taboo out of tax talk. We work at TurboTax, so obviously, this is what we love to talk about. But we're not here to replace your accountant. In each episode, we'll share our own personal opinions, advice, and jokes about all things financial. What we won't do is share any opinions on behalf of Intuit, TurboTax, their brands, or employees. The lawyers made you say that, huh, Lauren? So stop scrolling on Tax Talk, tell your CPA you'll call them back later, and let's talk tax, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Friends with Tax Benefits. I'm Lauren Thomas, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Thrall. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Lauren. I'm so happy to be back with you this week. And what is the topic today? Great question. The topic today is the 1099-K form, which is going to be super important for our listeners out there who are creators or who are self-employed. Yeah, I'm really excited about this topic today because whenever you put those numbers in front of forms, they they start feeling very overwhelming. And I'll I'll tell you this humbling thing that happened to me recently when I was registering to be a poll worker and they had me fill out like, here, you need to do your paperwork because we're actually going to pay you for this. And they got to the tax section and I was like, I need help. Um, So I'm glad we're digging in um, because it sounds complicated. 1099K. Yes, love it. So as we're talking about 1099Ks, this is a form that's going to be relevant to so many people this tax season. So people who are using third-party tools like PayPal or using Venmo or Cash App to send or receive money for business purposes, or creators who often have multiple streams of income and may also be receiving these 1099K forms this year. And as we were talking about this topic, this special guest today came to mind. So today we've got with us Lisette Calvero, who is an influencer extraordinaire. I met Lisette several years ago, and she's gone on the journey from working a full-time job and having a side hustle to growing multiple streams of revenue with her business to becoming a full-time entrepreneur and has a lot of lessons learned both in that employee to entrepreneur transition and then also helping other people grow their own businesses as influencers. So Lisette, welcome to the pod. Hi, thanks so much for having me. That was such a lovely intro. Every time I hear them, I'm like, that's me. (laughs) It is me. And it's so exciting to be here, like you said, because it's been such a journey of really turning content creation from hobby to side hustle to full-time job and now a business in the creator economy space. I will say it's been so exciting to just watch you grow and keep shining and evolving. So, you know, hats off to you. I want to just give you props for all the work that you've been doing for years. Thank you. That means the world. So, Lisette, if you were going to explain what your business is to somebody who knows nothing about what influencing is, how would you sum it up in a few sentences? What a day in the life is and and, and what you try to do for your clients? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I'm Latina and my parents have no idea what I do still. So it is a conversation for every holiday season. And what I always like to say is the word influencer doesn't have to be that complicated. It's someone who has 
influence. And these days, because we spend our time online, that usually translates to they have a social media account. They have a lot of followers. They've built a community around what they like talking about, all different types of categories. And because they have this trust established with their community, they're able to make money by endorsing products and brands. And that's kind of their first way in to making money. But then Think about authors, thought leaders, public speakers. They're still also making money from being booked for different gigs offline. They're being booked for different services that they're experts in. And a lot of content creators, they start with those brand partnerships, those endorsements, and they grow to doing even more based on the things that they're an expert in. Does that make sense? It does. And tell me what you're an expert in. Yeah, I would say these days. I'm an expert really in building communities online right? So I work with creators, giving them business strategy to help build these so-called businesses, right? And the way that I really support my clients is to find that intention. Because I think a lot of people, they think the word influencer and they think, I've got to find a way to get a lot of followers on social media. I've got to learn how to take cool pictures. And it's about way more than that, right? And even just building a business, knowing who to talk to for the things that you're not an expert in, you need a lot of guidance for that. So I've kind of had that background where I worked in the advertising agency world and was a creator myself, an influencer. So merging those two worlds, I'm able to see both sides. I'm able to see what the brands who are paying millions of dollars to creators need. And I'm able to see how I can advocate for creators and help creators continue to advocate for themselves. You know, this is especially interesting to me. I've been in the influencer game on the brand side even before it was a game. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not new to this, right? I've been in it for a long time on this side. A lot of creators are really one man or small show production studios, right? They're creating their own content. They're shooting videos. They're shooting their own photos. They're making their own podcasts. They're, they're literally solo production teams. And the years of effort and often investment in education and equipment in that also has so much value. And these days, what's interesting to me too is the power of that micro-influencer. So for those who aren't familiar, the level of influence you have in the industry, we have different tiers for how we can categorize that. And the main reason why I think there have been tiers is for budget. You know, you're not going to pay a celebrity who's been everywhere the same that you would pay a small author who doesn't have as much reach. And those tiers now, there is a lot less of a pay gap between the person with a million followers and the person with 10,000 followers who has really strong authority or really strong expertise. And it's, I think, again, because brands are noticing that it's way less about that number on social media, that flashy follower count. It's about the trust that you have. And someone with a smaller follower count can just as well have a really strong, engaged community. I have a million questions. So if I said, I got a new business. I like bicycles. And so I'm gigantic. I'm six feet six. And so one of the things I'm thinking about is like a boutique bike builder who builds bikes for giants. And and so you would maybe, you know, say, let's get a community for you, bike builder, who can cater to people who want custom made bicycles. Is that something? I mean, maybe that's out of the, 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 the product range that you do, but what does it look like to build a community um, and how do you identify who that potential community would be for whomever it is you're trying to help um, sort of grow their their influencing skills? 
This is actually a really unique and fun example to differentiate, you know, the creator business versus the traditional business, because there would be two different types of people here. One that says, I've got a genius idea of making bikes for big people, and I want to use social media to really promote this idea. You, at that point, are building a product-based business where it actually would take a different strategy. On the flip side, person number two says, I'm just obsessed with bikes. I happen to be tall, so I'm just going to talk about my journey biking as a tall person. And you start from that personal story, right? You start with you know, creating as much experimental content as you can around this, because that first, when you're starting from scratch, you really just have to experiment. There's no way to trick social media algorithms into one way of making content. You have to learn how to be comfortable making content and failing sometimes at content, right? Seeing those flops, videos with zero views, get comfortable because what really matters is consistency. So I always tell people, lean into your story, start there and experiment. So you would start telling us, you maybe would start showing different routes that you take. You would start showing how at home you fix your own bikes and really customize them a little for yourself because you happen to have that experience as a taller person. And over time, you start attracting people who are both possibly sharing your story. There are also tall people who really want bikes, but you also start, that's the bullseye. You will attract a complimentary community of people who are seeking adventure, who maybe really just connect with your personality. They think the way you make content is really interesting. They think it's really maybe goofy if that were your personality. They can see themselves in you. Now you're building trust. Now these people are really here for you, the person, Daniel, the tall biker. And over the years, brands who support anything that you're going through, you know, replacement tire brands for bikes, you know, bike patch brands, they're going to reach out to you and they're going to say, Daniel, your community really trusts you. What would it take for us to be featured on your channels to create some sponsored content? Boom. That's the first time you're going to make money. Let's say two years down the road, that community is so trusted that you realize, you know what? I probably could build my own tall bike line, or I can collaborate with an existing bicycle company and co-brand, you know, Daniel's community with that bike company that already did all the legwork. That's another way that you're going to start monetizing. And you grow and you grow from there. And I can bet over the years, year three, you've expanded from only talking about bikes. All of a sudden, it's your lived experience as a tall person who loves adventure and the outdoors and really doing things for fitness. So this is how you really start to evolve as a personal brand, as a content creator, versus person A is still just trying to sell that one product they made with no real consumer feedback element, right? So you kind of put a product out there not knowing if it's going to sell. You're actually, person two, you have feedback before you have product. So that, I think, is a really great way to build a business. And I love, Lisette, I think you've had quite a learning curve going from someone working full-time to a hobbyist to a side hustler to a full-time business owner. I'd love to dig into some of the lessons you've learned along the way when it comes to money and finances and how you're managing cash flow that goes up and down and how you're thinking about taxes. Yeah. Influencers are 
the director, the photographer, the hair and makeup artist, also the accountant without giving legal and financial advice. They are everything when they start their business. And a lot of creators, that's what intimidates them the most. That's what really holds them back from turning it into a business. And they keep it as a hobby, not usually realizing that, well, when you're earning money, even if it is a hobby or your friends Venmoing you, you might still have some tax liability there. So a lot of creators will wait for that moment. So number one lesson will kind of really tie into this first moment is you have to start before you're ready. It doesn't matter if you have the perfect logo. doesn't matter if you have the perfect website. Find a way to formalize your business, whether it's getting a DBA, doing business as, so you're able to really establish some sort of name, LLCs, whatever you want to get for your business. I think that that's a really good step for you to say, this is official. And that helps the IRS because they're like, all right, this is not a hobby anymore, right? So it's working toward those steps. And a lot of creators are waiting to make a certain amount of money and a milestone. Maybe when I make my first $1,000, maybe when I... And it's easier to just start before you're ready. I always say one of my biggest mistakes is I didn't open a business checking account until year one of this being my full-time job. So the waters were murky in terms of finances, you know, how to separate your business income from your personal income. And just because I was a good budgeter, I thought I got away with it, but it could have potentially put me in a dangerous tax situation. So it's something that I always recommend. Make yourself official from day one. And what also happens is a little bit of a mindset shift. Even if you have no idea what an LLC is, just opening one, you're like, this feels good. I'm a business owner. You start taking yourself more seriously. You start to raise your prices. Everything just feels that much more established. So definitely do that from the beginning. And I have an interesting story where, again, I had that agency background. It was first a hobby. And I remember my first blog in 2013, the sole purpose of it was to tell my mom and dad that I'm doing fine. I live in New York and I'm just telling you what I'm doing every day, where I ate, what I'm wearing. There was no purpose to the blog except I am here. And it took a really long time actually to finally start monetizing because what happens is when you just start with no plan, right? Not even a vision. You really are just making content. And like we've been talking about, probably putting out content with no specific person in mind, no specific niche or category in mind, and not really honoring your story. You're just kind of putting things out there that you think need to be out there. And with that, I fell into a habit of creating content that I thought I should be making, going to the restaurants I thought I should be eating at because it would make for really good content, right? And going on trips that, you know, other creators are going here, I must go there. And I was living off of an advertising salary, right? In New York City, that is not (laughs) the equivalent of going on trips every month. And I put a lot of stuff on credit cards. And one day I decided to come out on social media, get financially naked. And I said, you guys, I need to talk to you about the cost of being an influencer, the way you think influencers are living, right? A lot of the big celebrity style influencers, they're going to those places for free. I'm paying for it. So I am now paying back the credit card debt that I got into, you know, for all the activities I built up. That story went viral. And it was an accidental viral because again, you can randomly go viral without planning it. I think people were just waiting for a moment to say, you see, influencing is not real. Everything you see is fake. It's all a made up lifestyle. 
And I'm like, no, 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 it's not a made up lifestyle. It's just an expensive lifestyle that's not realistic for the everyday person. So honor your own story and live at the lifestyle that you have. And when I made that shift, that was the first time that my community really started to trust me a lot more. This is early 2018. That was the first year I actually was earning a lot of money working with brands and endorsing them, not because of that viral moment, but because they realized that my community was really engaged on the topic, the topic of business, the topic of finances, the topic of advocating for yourself and being as authentic as you can be online. And when all of that really started to take place, that's when I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do about finances? where am I? Now that I have money coming in, what do I do with it? And like I said, the first thing I did is let's try to find a way to make it official. Wish I did the business checking account sooner. And from there, just trying to learn as I go. You know, there are today, I think so many more resources for creators because more people are taking the creator space seriously as a career, as a job. They are no longer just, you know, someone taking pictures on the internet as the stigma used to be. You are your own media company. And I just kind of learn as I go from others, from peers, following other experts in this space and influencers of this space, you know? What tips do you have for people? I know a lot of folks are in the side hustle space where they've got the nine to five or they've got multiple hustles. And how do you manage the taxes of your business? And what does that look like for you, Lisette? It's funny because when I first started my business, I actually had a Google Sheet. It was just a really simple, you know, sheet on the internet that I could go in and say, here's how much I got paid and here is how much I spent. But even then, I was not properly deducting it because what I didn't do is think about the things that probably are mixed because again, this used to be hobby. Now it's business and it was really hard to differentiate and build boundaries around that. But What I had to do is start to then say, I love saying financially naked because that's what I would do. I would have a date with my finances and just really look at everything I'm spending on my personal account, on my new business checking account, and then ask myself, did I miss something? Is there a subscription that I need to switch my card for? And really start to figure out what is business, what is personal, and really make sure those boundaries are strong. Software does now help, right? Software can help me categorize things and is able to give me my estimated tax that I have to pay quarterly. But then as my business develops further and further, now we're talking, I have a team of four. I have contractors that work with me. That is totally different than me having to just, you know, make my money, put my expenses up there and file. These days, I make sure that for the business side of it, right? So I'm actually an S corporation, won't get into pass-through entities, but essentially I have my own taxes, my own 1099K, and then my business has to do their own taxes. That part of my business having to go do things is where the accountant comes in, as that is not my zone of genius. Um, but I still do my own personal taxes. And last year was the first year that I was a full S corporation for the entirety of the year. And it was so interesting because I thought, oh man, is this going to change things? Because I really like doing my own taxes, but you still have to because of the way your entity is formed. Basically business is done and all of that revenue is now personal revenue that I still have to report myself. So I do it myself. So as we are getting into tax season, there's one change this year that is likely to affect people who are self-employed like you. 
And it's the 1099K form. And for those of us who are not quite yet familiar with this form, it's essentially an IRS form that is used to report credit or debit card transactions and third-party network payments. That means if you are making money as a business through eBay or online selling or using Venmo or Cash App for business transactions, you may be getting this form this year. And one of the big changes going into effect this year is that the threshold of who gets this form has changed a lot since last year. So before, you had to earn over $20,000 and have at least 200 transactions in a year to get the form. And this year, anyone who earns $600 in one of these transaction tools or third-party network payments is going to get the form. Have you ever gotten a 1099K form, Lisette? And if so, what do you do when you get a form you're not even quite familiar with? First year being an S-Corp, I got the 1099K form. PayPal is a way that I used to allow people to pay for services. Very formal, again, as a business account. So PayPal did give me one of those. And to your point, I think everyone's first reaction is Google. You go and you're like, internet, what is 1099K form? And then you probably can't read what Google is telling you. So I personally... I go to social media next. And I'm not going because I want the financial advice. I just want to see if anyone happens to be talking about this in a way that is almost layman's term that I can really understand without having the accountant or financial advisor background. Now I have my list of questions that I can go and take and ask. So that's really what I did last year and what I will do this year because I think it is a little bit confusing for a lot of people, especially if you're doing personal transactions on Venmo where your friends, you're all going on a big trip. So they might owe you a thousand bucks, right? So does that count? You don't really know. So you want to make sure you get some sort of almost like a community forum information first is what I like to do to then take it to the expert and say, here are different perspectives I got. Here's different things and my understanding what is best for my specific tax situation. Lisette, it's always such a joy to see your story and have watched you grow and evolve over the years. So it's been such a delight to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights and your stories. Thank you both. And I was so excited to talk to you. And I hope a lot of people learn from these experiences. Let's welcome Diana Castro. She's been a bilingual tax expert at TurboTax since 2018. And she's also the founder and president of Legacy Tax Services, Inc. It's a full-service tax firm offering tax preparation, tax resolution, and tax planning services located in sunny California. Ms. Castro is an IRS-approved enrolled agent, which means she's a certified tax expert, a real estate broker, and mortgage broker, and has helped her clients to create wealth and retain more of their earnings by providing advanced tax reduction strategies and mortgage planning advice for over 20 years. Welcome to the podcast, Diana. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lauren. I'm really happy to be here today and hope to impart some advice that's really going to help some of your viewers. One thing I always appreciate about Diana is that she's so great about breaking down really pretty complex tax topics and also uncovering things people didn't even know they could do financially or write off from a tax perspective. So Diana, let's dig into that. 
First of all, what exactly is a 1099K? That's a great question, Lauren, because there's recently been a lot of confusion around the 1099K. A lot of people think that maybe this is a new form, but the form's actually been around quite a while, but it really hadn't impacted uh, or potentially impacted um, the amount of taxpayers that it could affect now. Essentially what the 1099K is, it's a federal form that deals with third-party payments. So if you've been transacting goods and services, for example, like selling on eBay or Etsy, or PayPal, then the third-party merchant would potentially be issuing you a 1099K if you've transacted more than $20,000 from over 200 transactions. And now that threshold, um, there has been some talk that it could potentially change to, for example, to $600. But as of now, for 2022, it is still $20,000 in payments from over 200 transactions. Got it. So there is no change to the threshold for a 1099K for the taxes I'm doing right now. But for next tax year, when I do my taxes in 2023, there may be a lowering of a threshold to $600. Do I have that right? Yes. So the limits are staying the same for calendar year 2022, and there could be potential changes during the calendar year 2023. Perfect. I get it. Now, what I don't get is the difference between a 1099K and these other 1099 forms that exist, what's the difference between a 1099K and other forms that are also called 1099? All right. Well, Daniel, you're not alone in this confusion. So basically, there are uh, two other main 1099 forms. One is called a 1099 MIS or 1099 miscellaneous, and the other one is a 1099 um, NEC. And basically, the difference between these is the Form 1099 NEC is something that was just recently introduced a few years ago. And now the difference between the 1099 miscellaneous and the 1099 NEC are this. The miscellaneous just think of it as miscellaneous information, right? It's not um, in like non-employee compensation like the 1099. So miscellaneous information are things like payments you've made to attorneys, uh, royalties, rents, um, and other miscellaneous payments. So they would be reported to you on a 1099 miscellaneous. Now, the 1099 NEC is now specifically for non-employee compensation. This also used to be included on the 1099 miscellaneous, but now they have a separate form just for the non-employee compensation. So it's basically used for reporting non-employee compensation and payments made to independent contractors during a tax year. Oh, I got it. So it's a non-permanent employee. So if there's a any anybody who, for example, if there's a contractor at Intuit or I hire a contractor for work at my house, or they, if they're not a full-time employee, they could get an NEC. Is that right? Exactly. So for example, you mentioned um, work at your house. So let's say you have a rental property and you are paying a landscaper or a contractor. You would report that on a 1099 NEC. However, let's say you had a property manager reporting, uh, managing your property. They would report the rents you've received on a 1099 miscellaneous. Got it. So Diana, one question I've seen people have around this is, if I sell a large ticket item online, like a car, will I still get a 1099K? 
So as of now, it's going to depend right on the threshold. If you're meeting the threshold and it's under $20,000, then you're likely not going to receive that 1099K. Um, however, in an event that you do receive a 1099K that's an error, you can certainly go back to the merchant. Um, their phone number and contact information would be on that 1099K. Um, another way to handle that would be, you know, if you had a loss, it would be to report the difference between what was reported on that 1099K and what you actually purchased that item for in order to determine whether you had a loss or a gain. And if you have a gain, you're required to report that gain even if you don't receive a 1099K. Diana, one follow-up question to to Lauren's question about that that car. So if she sells a car for a lot of money, $50,000, but that's the only thing that she sold online. So it's $50,000, but only one transaction, not 200 transactions. She does not need to fill out a 1099K. Is that right? Well, she would never be the one filling out the 1099K. It would be the merchant. So the merchant should not be issuing her a 1099K since she didn't meet the threshold of 20,200 transactions. But she could be issued a 1099K in error. And that's where I had mentioned that there would be then the two different ways to try to resolve that. Either correct it with the merchant or um, go ahead and report it correctly on the tax return. Since the IRS is going to be looking for that 1099K, whether you should have received it or not, because it was issued, you're still going to want to report it. And then one more question from you that might be helpful for our listeners who are creators or influencers. If I receive items to promote on my social channels, do I have to pay taxes on the value of those gifts? The general answer to that is that in most cases, it is considered compensation, which means that you will need to pay tax on the value of the gift. But there is one exception. And the exception to that is if you are sent products to review and you review those products and the value of those products is less than $100, then that is the exemption and no taxes need to be paid on those. Thanks for helping to answer those questions for our listeners. Thanks, Diana. And, and thank you, Lauren. Yeah, I finally get some of this 1099K action. And that's all thanks to you, Diana. So I really appreciate you being here with us today. Bye, Daniel. See you next time, Lauren. Friends with Tax Benefits is an Intuit TurboTax podcast presented by TurboTax Studios and made in partnership with Frequency Media. We're your hosts, Daniel Thrall. And I'm Lauren Thomas. From Intuit TurboTax, Jane Lahani is our executive producer and Tony Melinda is our video producer. From Frequency Media, Jordan Rizieri is our producer Emily Krumberger is our associate producer, and Matthew Ernest Filler is our editor and sound designer. Concept development by Jessica Olivier, Jill Pashesnik, and Isabel Moncloa Daly. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are found.